Ephesians 6, Paul is instructing the reader to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we read these words, verses 12 through 17. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. How many knows this world is dark? Against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we're going to talk about that. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Look at your neighbor, tell him, stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Victory is already won. I don't know if you know that or not. Jesus Christ already conquered the enemy. The devil has lost. Well, I got two of you right now. Can I get everybody to believe the devil has lost? The fight is fixed. You're going to win. But the only way he has the power is if you give up. And that's why Paul is saying, stand firm in Christ's victory. And Paul tells the Ephesians over and over, stand, 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 stand. I preached a series here in 2017. And this message was, was birthed out of a season uh, that I went through with my son. And I'm not going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, but I want to revisit it this morning. And I want to preach to you for a little while on this topic. Stand and fight. Stand and fight. Stand and fight. And when I'm talking about stand, I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. Stand and fight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank you for this great group of people. God, help me to preach your word the way that you want it preached, God. With the compassion you want it preached with, with also, but also with the challenge you want to give out today to these great people and to myself. God, I'm, I'm getting the word just as much as giving it. And help us today and lead us and guide us and direct us and open our eyes to what's going on around us and help us to, to mark our homes as a place where you dwell and that the enemy cannot have access there. In Jesus' name, we ask it to be done. Somebody shout amen. amen. Give the Lord one more hand clap, and you may be seated this morning. Being a freshman in high school has a way of humbling even the most confident teenager. I remember walking onto my high school campus for the first time as a freshman, and yes, that's been a long time ago. But I remember quickly realizing how challenging it would be that year. I found myself feeling insufficient, uncertain about the new scenery, and overwhelmed by the moment. It felt like the upperclassmen were analyzing my every move, every move, almost waiting for me to show any sign of weakness. Just waiting for a moment to intimidate, and that moment eventually happened. I'll never forget it. I was in class one day, minding my own business, and sitting a couple rows in front of me was an upperclassman named Cliff. He was a decent athlete, yet he thought he was better than what he really was. So he exuded arrogance and was overconfident, and it didn't help that somehow he had developed the reputation of being tough. The way people talked about him was almost mythical. I'm talking about legendary status with the likes of Chuck Norris and Doc Holliday. Nobody messed with Cliff until fate allowed our paths to cross one day. We're sitting there, and suddenly the guy sitting beside me decided to ball up a piece of paper and throw it toward the front of the class. I don't know. If he was trying to make it in the trash can or just trying to show out, but the paper missed its target and hit Cliff in the back of the head. Blinded with fury, Cliff now jumps out of his desk 
It's like a scene out of a movie. Smoke instantly appeared around him, and LL Cool J's mama said, knock you out, started playing in the background. And immediately the guy who threw the paper cowers down and points at me. I was the freshman, the new kid on the block. So Cliff thought he was about to make an example out of me. He stands over me with his fist balled up like he's about to jump on me at first. I tried to explain, Cliff, it wasn't me. I said, Cliff, I, I didn't hit you with a piece of paper, but Cliff didn't want to hear that. He starts threatening and trying to intimidate me. Finally, after I realized there was no convincing Cliff that I didn't throw the piece of paper, revelation started flowing in that classroom. And I thought, if he jumps on me while I'm sitting here restrained at this desk, I'll have no chance to defend myself. Then more revelation flows. I thought, if I don't stand up for myself now, all the upperclassmen will think I'm weak, and the rest of the year, I'm going to be an easy target for everybody else. So suddenly, I jumped out of that desk. I looked him in the eyes. I pointed my finger in his face, and I said, I told you it wasn't me who threw the piece of paper. And I just stared at him with a look that said, you might whip me. You might. It's a big might. You might. But you're going to have to take that chance with me standing up. Because this isn't going to be an easy fight, Cliff. I will not allow you to stand over me and bully me and challenge me while I just sit here and do nothing. And I noticed something. When my posture changed from sitting to standing, Cliff's demeanor changed from aggressive to calm. I could see it in his eyes. He was thinking, if I start this fight and this freshman whips me, which was a good possibility in front of all these people, <laughs> my reputation will never recover. So Cliff sounded the retreat, calmly says, okay, but don't let it happen again. And by this time, I'm feeling bold, like I'm feeling like the man. I respond, what if it does happen again, Cliff? What, what are you going to do? And I just hurried up and sat back down real quick. <laughs> but that was the last time that I ever had any trouble with Cliff. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. Cliff didn't want to fight. He wanted a reputation without an actual fight. He wanted a trophy without the work. He didn't want to catch these hands. And when I stood up, it revealed that Cliff was really a pretender and not a contender. And the same thing needs to happen in this place today. Some of you, the enemy's been beating you down. You got to stand up and say, you're not going to win that easy. It's not going to be that simple. You're not going to conquer me that easy. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to fight back. I've had enough. At some point, you got to get it down in your spirit. I've had enough. I am an overcomer. I'm a fighter. There are some husbands and wives, moms and dads that are here today, that you're getting ready to let the enemy know my home and my family are not for sale. Not for sale. Not for sale. They're not. If i got to fight every day of my life for my family and my home, I'll fight spiritually. If I've got to mark the door lintel of my home every day with some olive oil and speak the name of Jesus, I will because my family is not for sale. My home does not belong to the enemy. And I refuse to just sit the fight out. I've got to stand up and I've got to fight back and I've got to push back spiritually. The Holy Spirit has sent me here today to wake us up. Listen, it's not time to pull back. It's not time to pray less. It's not time to read the word less. It's not time to be less faithful. Spiritual lethargy is an attitude of laziness or slothfulness in one's spiritual responsibilities. A spiritually lethargic person is one who has lost passion and zeal in their spiritual life due to the lack of the influence of God's Holy Spirit. And can I be honest? Spiritual lethargy is plaguing our churches today. But I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time. You know what time it is. Does anybody know what time it is? That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Imagine you put on your best clothes, whatever that is, whatever your best clothes is. Imagine you put that on to come to church. And as you're walking to service, you notice a shortcut, but it's through a back alley and involves climbing through two dumpsters. Do you take the route? No, that dirty environment would foul your pristine clothes. And when he's, what he's saying right here is you can't put me on and start climbing through the dumpsters of sin every day of your life. You, you can't put on my righteousness and my glory and my power and then just keep climbing in the dumpsters of sin and life. You got to take that junk off. You got you to take off the darkness. You got to get rid of it. You got to throw it away. You got to make up in your mind, I'm not going dumpster diving today in the spirit realm. I'm going to where there's life. I'm going to where there's spiritual nutrition. I'm going to where I can get fed spiritually today. And let me go a step further. And it's going to get a little tense in here for a second. But I've got, I've got to share this with you because it's on my heart. But I want to tell us what will happen if we don't wake up and push back against the darkness encompass, encompassing us right now. God's word is clear from the beginning that man being made in his own image is a morally responsible creature who is endowed both by virtue of the divine image and by special revelation from God with an understanding of right and wrong. So God made us to know what is right, what is wrong. That's why your kid cries when they get in trouble. They know, I shouldn't have done that. It was wrong. And because of this, we are accountable to God. He has given every one of us a conscience. And because of that, we ought to know better. We ought to know better. How many remembers back in the day they had the cartoons where they had a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other? That's your conscience. We've been born in a sin shaped into iniquity. So there is, there is sin always pulling on us in our life. But also there's, there's, there's a built-in compass that says don't do that. It's not right. It, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't make that decision. Yet many act in willful rebellion, suppressing the truth and so confirming our guilt. But we can only suppress it so much. Listen, you can only tell your conscience, I'm not listening to you no more, so much. You can only shut that angel down on your shoulder so much and say, I'm not, I'm not listening to you. Isaiah, Isaiah famously declares, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The reversal of good and evil is a sure sign of a seared conscience. It's like when you tell your conscience, no, you know it's wrong. I shouldn't do it. But you tell your conscience, it's okay. The world around me is doing it. Look, everybody else is doing it, so I can do it. It's all right. All of a sudden, it's like you take a hot iron and you're searing your conscience. And when you sear your conscience, it's actually the result of divine judgment. Romans 1 describes rebels becoming darkened in their hearts and being given over by God to their sin. Did you, you hear what I just said? The more you sear your conscience and you say, God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I don't care what your word says. I don't care what my conscience says. I, I don't want to feel guilt about it. All of a sudden, God says, you want it? Go get it. Second Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12 is perhaps the strongest and most frightening description of this judgment against sin. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The more pleasure that we find in this world and in unrighteousness, the more our conscience becomes seared and we, don't longer, we no longer feel conviction or guilt. We're no longer pulled by the preaching of God's word. We're no longer drawn by the altar. Let me summarize it for us. If someone persists in hardening their heart and believing a lie, eventually God will give them what they want. Got to wake up. And I believe there's a shift in the spirit that is getting ready to happen in this place today. Some of us understand that we've been searing our conscience. We, our conscience has been telling us, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't look at that. Don't, 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 
Don't make that decision. And we've been like, no, I'm good. I'm good. It's okay. It's all right. It's not all right. If your conscience told you no, then you've got to man up or woman up. And you've got to say, no, not today. I want God more than I do anything else in my life. And I believe that we're going to leave here today and when we wake up in the morning and our feet hit the floor, the enemy's going to be like, oh, 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 they're awake now. They're awake. They're, they're up. They're up. See, right now, right now, some of us get up and the enemy, he don't care if we up or not. But when we leave here today and you get up in the morning, the enemy's going to say, oh, they woke up. They up. They up. They getting ready to shake my kingdom. They're getting ready to pull people out of my snares. They're getting ready. They're getting ready to do something great for the kingdom of God. Hear me. It's never going to be the same after today. We're going to take up spiritual weapons. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight. Because just like Cliff, we have an arch nemesis, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. How many knows he's real? It's sad, it's sad that I've got to say that, but Lucifer's real. He's real. He's real. And he's out doing everything he can, trying to deceive. And he's after us, trying to intimidate and keep us in a cycle of defeat, discouragement, confusion, rebellion, addiction, and many other things. He wants us to sit this fight out, resulting in the spiritual, social, and political chaos we're experiencing today. The problem in our world isn't the enemy, though. It's the fact that men have become irresponsible with their kingdom purpose, resulting in a torn, tattered society and utter dysfunction. Oh, it's Father's Day, so I need to talk to the men for a moment. Matthew 12 and 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. That's how important a strong man is to the home. And Satan knows how vital and valuable we are to the kingdom of God as men. This battle goes back to when God created man. The man was made to rule underneath the authority of God. Think about it. God created the man before creating the woman. Like pouring a foundation first because the success or failure of God's created purpose of building his kingdom in history would be directly related to a man's relationship with God and submission to God's rule over his life. Making the man a protector, a watchman, and provider for his family. We are to be in tune with God so that we can pass down generational blessings to our children. And that's why Satan goes to great lengths to remove us men from functioning in alignment with God. So that our families, churches, communities, and nation experiences the negative consequences and confusion of men that are no longer underneath divine alignment of God. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11 and 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. The word head has to do with governance and guidance and covering and responsibility. Christ takes responsibility for all Christian men who are aligned under him. And a man is supposed to take responsibility for his family because they're underneath him. And once the man is out of the way, the enemy has freedom to attack everyone else in the home, the wife and the children, because the strong man has been bound and the enemy plunders the home. Oh, I know, I know, I know. We ain't heard preaching like this in a while, but you got you to let me tell you what the Word of God says. This isn't me. It's the Word of God. So the enemy intimidates and accuses us day and night. Just like Cliff, he wants us to believe the hype. But I've come to remind someone, the Word tells us that he's only like a roaring lion. Proving he's really more bark than bite. So you've got to stop believing the lies of the enemy. Man of God, you're not a failure. Man of God, you're not your past. Man of God, you're called. Man of God, you know we're not built for addiction or depression or failure or discouragement. You were built to be under divine alignment of God, taking authority over your family and your home. You are a man of God. You're a world changer. And the enemy's condemning you and he's telling you, look at what you did. Stop looking at what you did and start deciding what you're going to be. I'm going to be a man of God. Simon Peter will go on to state in 1 Peter 5 and 8 that the enemy's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may can devour. Who he may can devour. He's looking for people he can devour. I read an article in, in the New York Times that said lions don't always play fair. 
they often prey on the feeble and the weak. And researchers have found that predators show a preference for less than fully capable victims. In other words, those who won't put up much of a fight. Those who let culture define their values. Those who are shaken by every wind of opposition and who don't stand and push back. Those who love the temporal more than the eternal. But please hear me. There are those that the enemy can devour. But if there are those he can devour, then there are those he cannot devour. There are warriors and not quitters among us. There are intercessors and not negotiators. There are those that have been marked among the elect. If there are those, you ready? It's this simple. If there are those that he can devour, there are those that say, you know what? I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together, but I refuse to quit. I refuse to give up. I refuse to throw in the towel. I may lose round one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, but you better believe at the end of the fight, I will still be standing. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to turn around. My mind is made up. And if God can get his men to rise as kingdom men, the men he has created us to be, men who pursue a relationship with him while representing him in all we do, he will reverse the downward spiral of this culture. I can tell you, we have a problem in the world, but we knew that. But we can help change this world. I believe that with all my heart. If we can get kingdom men to start praying and reading the word of God and, and teaching their family the word, I believe that we can change uh, this community. I believe we can change uh, this world. And it's time to accept the responsibility and reverse the decay and disunity that engulfs us. Our homes need a covering. Man, stand and fight. Our cities are crying for the gospel. Stand and fight. The river needs mighty men of valor. Stand and fight. Our high schools and college campuses need anointed voices. Stand and fight, young men. Who will be God's voice in these last days? Who will sound the alarm? Who will be a watchman and say it's time for battle? I will stand and fight. The advice the Apostle Peter gave to Christians on how to contend with and overcome Satan is to what? Resist the devil. Resist him. Resist means to stand your ground, stop running away. Watch this. Rangers who have studied lions. Look, I'm, I'm a lion expert now. I'm telling you right now, tame a lion. But rangers who have studied lions in the wild tell you that you never First off, I'm not going to be in the wild with a lion. I can tell you that right now. If somebody tells you, I saw a pastor out there in the wild with some lion, that, that wasn't me or somebody dropped me off, somebody kidnapped me. I'm not going. I'm not, I'm not very adventurous. I'm not going out there. I go to the zoo, look at them in the enclosure and say, man, look at that beautiful lion. But they tell you this, that if you ever just so happen to encounter a lion, don't ever turn your back and run from a charging lion. Never. You see, lions are accustomed to their victims fleeing, but standing firm and facing them bewilders them, and it confuses them. In most cases, the charging lion will stop and run away. So if you ever do get caught, this is good information, not just spiritual, but for life lessons. If you ever do get caught, you better stand your ground and look at that lion and say, buddy, you better run back at him. But the Lord has sent me here today. And say the reason some of you are getting maimed by the enemy is because you're running away from the lion. The reason that some of you is literally, literally going to bed every night with condemnation and your mind is just being, being destroyed by the enemy is because you're trying to run from him instead of looking at him and saying, not today, it's over. It's over. I'm not built to retreat. I don't know the sound of retreat. All I do is know the sound of charge. I'm not going backwards. I'm only going forwards. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying the armor is not built for retreat, but for active Christian men who are ready to tear the devil's kingdom down, stand and fight. And as Paul launches into this analogy of the armor, and of the warfare that the Christian is called to engage in, he paints a picture of God's people learning to stand up under all sorts of attacks. Paul says no matter what comes or goes, no matter what is thrown at us, no matter what tactics are used, we are to stand. If you've ever watched an action movie, 
There is that scene in every action movie where the camera pans in on the hero standing there. He has been beaten and battered. He's been burned, shot, stabbed, and dropped 10 stories out of a helicopter after already surviving 15 car wrecks. But there he is standing. And when we reach the end of our days here on this earth, are we going to be standing before God? When the final shot of our life needs, when it happens, when the final shot of our life happens, it needs to be a shot of us not barely crawling in, but us standing there saying we've been through some things, but we made it through because we were willing to stand and fight. We took everything the enemy can throw at us, but we stood in the midst of it all. The commandment itself is simple, stand. Paul repeats it four times in the first five verses. We are told to take a stand, stand our ground, to just plain stand and to stand firm. This is not a call to stand most of the time. I know a lot of people, they can stand most of the time. This is a command to dig your feet in and to make the decision that nothing will move you. His command to stand firm was used to indicate that the soldier's responsibility in battle or to describe the taking of a position. Like soldiers on a battlefield, they must not yield an inch of ground no matter how hard their adversaries press against them. Paul was telling us that the armor of God is of no good if we're sitting fights out. It's not built for show, it's built for battle. You don't come in the house of God and say, look how pretty my armor is today. No, when you come into the house of God, your shield is dented in because you've been taking fiery darts from the enemy. When you come into the house of God, your armor's got a little dirt on it because you've been in the middle of a battle. Standing in the Spirit means continually recognizing that we are not warring against people, but this is a spiritual battle. What we call spiritual warfare is the conflict in the spiritual realm that affects the physical realm. The daily problems we face today are not rooted in this world. You got to get this. Preacher, you lost your mind. No, no, no. This is Paul saying. The problems we face are not rooted in this world. They're rooted in the spiritual realm. That's why I'm preaching this. Look around. I don't know when the Antichrist will be publicly announced. But I'll tell you that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work right now in our world. It's laying the foundation for tolerance and acceptance. Look, the Christian church doesn't stand for anything anymore, and it's baffling. Because the Spirit is trying to soften us up, confuse us, and rock us asleep. And the closer we get to the end time, the more active the Spirit becomes while encouraging apathy and complacency, erasing the idea of values. We're being taught that there is no such thing as morals and absolutes. Provoking the world systems to be hostile toward God and the church. And in this role, Satan injects his methods and wiles into the educational system, mass media, art, style, and culture. Making notions of tolerance and pluralism. Nothing is wrong. Don't have any boundaries. Do what feels good. Everything's okay. There's no such thing as immorality or sin. Erase the lines of separation. Lay down your spiritual weapons and enjoy life. You see, the Spirit, the Spirit is continually promoting self-indulgence and gratification. Be your own God. And the enemy presses us every day to either fight or compromise. And it's a daily decision. And the Bible says Delilah sent, was sent by Samson's enemy. But she pressed him daily with her words because he didn't realize that, that, that she's out to get him. And she pressed him daily with her words until finally he stopped fighting and he laid his head in her lap, forfeiting his power. Be careful what you become comfortable with. And some of us don't even realize how numb we become to the things that are out to destroy us. His hands were lethal weapons. With his bare hands, he ripped off the head of the lion that came roaring after him. He whipped 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And when the Philistines thought they had him surrounded, he took the gate of the city, tore it off the hinges, and took it with him, the two posts, and he placed them upon his shoulder, and he carried them up a hill. This was a bad man. He was a man with extraordinary strength that was so powerful there was no enemy that he couldn't conquer and he knew it so he thought he thought that he can get away with anything but the one thing stronger than samson was samson 
He couldn't control himself. He couldn't contain his sinful lust or his anger and bitterness. And, and there was times that it says that Samson would make a mistake because he took a, vas- a Nazarite vow. And there was times that, that he went against his consecration, but he would just shake his shoulders and the Spirit of the Lord would fall upon him. But Sta- Samson was never stirred. Samson thought he could keep playing games, continue to break his vows of consecration and still be strong and victorious until finally he found himself blind and being led around by a lad while people made fun of him. The mighty is now defeated. The warrior is now the trophy. All because he laid down instead of standing and fighting. And Satan, I'm telling you, I feel the anointing. God has sent me here because Satan wants some of you just to give up and quit. He wants, you, he wants to keep you focused on self and the pleasures of the flesh and the temporal conference of this life. He wants to keep our attention fixed on the preservation of the temporary. But I've come to remind somebody, Paul, Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a battle. It's a fight. It's never going to be just comfortable. We've got to make a decision. There's going to be ebbs and flows. There's going to be goods and bads. We've got to make a decision that we're going to fight. And I don't have time to cover all of this, but let me say this. If you do not know how to navigate the spiritual realm, you cannot hope to truly overcome the physical realm. Because we are like a police officer in his living room shooting at his TV because he sees a criminal on a reality show. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You got to know where your battle is. Our battle battles originate in the spiritual realm, the heavenly places. So the only way to fight them is with weapons that work in that realm. Those words, high places, bothered me, so I studied it out. The spiritual powers are not spiritual principles, but spiritual hosts of wickedness. And the phrase in the high places relates to the power of the air. TV, music, text messages, emails, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, power of the air, the airwaves. I'm not against any of these things. I'm really not. And I believe that we can use each of these platforms for the glory of God. But we must be careful what we are giving a gateway to our lives. We've got to be careful. The Great Wall of China, 4,000 miles of an impenetrable wall. But in its first 100 years, it was penetrated three times. You know why? Because the enemy bribed the gatekeeper. Satan doesn't have power, more power than us. But Paul says he has wiles and methods. He wants to set up high places in our lives so that we'll open the door to our homes and our families and our lives. And it worries me that we can't live a day without entertainment. But we can go weeks without praying over our family, reading our Bibles, or doing a devotional at home. Can't go a day without television. But we can go months without opening the Word of God. And let me, let me tell you this. I want to give you some instruction right here because I don't want you leaving here saying I didn't help you. There are three uses of time. Immoral, wrong, sinful, amoral, neutral. And then there is spiritual, edifying of the spirit. And we must answer the question, have we given the adversary high places in our lives? The average American watches five hours of television, Hulu, Netflix, et cetera, a day. That's 1,825 hours a year. Most Americans are going to spend 76 days this year watching television. You heard what I just said? 76 days this year. Consumers spent $23.5 billion on the gaming industry, and that was in 2015. And $16.5 billion of that was spent on gaming content alone. Gamers are spending on average 13 hours a week on a gaming console. Teens now spend up to nine hours a day on social platforms. That's 3,285 hours this year spent on social media. Teens will spend approximately 137 days out of a 365-day year on social media. But we ain't got time to pray. Just too busy. At 500 million Snapchat stories per day, calculated at 10 seconds each, it would take over 158 years to watch an entire day of Snapchat stories. Per Business Insider, users spend an average of 25 to 30 minutes each day on Snapchat. People around the world will send 8.3 trillion text messages in just this year alone. 
That's almost 23 billion messages per day or nearly 16 million messages per minute. Messages are being delivered through the airwaves and they're controlling us. And we don't even realize that Satan's title is the prince and the power of the air. And the word translated air as air in the scripture is speaking of mood or the atmosphere of thought. The atmosphere. Have you ever heard love is in the air? That's an atmosphere. Or if someone says Paris has a romantic atmosphere, you would understand that they were talking about a particular mood or feeling in the air. We listen to music to set a particular atmosphere. That's why when you go to basketball games, they got that bass pumping. We watch a movie to provoke an emotion. Do we realize that Scripture teaches us that there are spiritual battles taking place all around us every day because we live in two atmospheres at one time? One is physical and one is spiritual. And the devil knows the power of atmosphere. You can grow bananas in Jamaica, but not in Alaska. Well, that's revelation right there. Why? Because of atmosphere. So let me ask you a question. This isn't a judgmental question. This is a question to myself. What are you empowering in the air? What spirits are you hosting? What grows in the atmosphere you are creating? The enemy is like a python. He wants to take God's presence out of our homes, leading to anxiety and depression and arguing. So what are we allowing in our home? And man of God, when the death angel got ready to visit Egypt, it was the man of each household's responsibility to apply the blood to the door lintel of the home. And the enemy couldn't go past the blood. Men, we need to plead the blood. Have you ever wondered why the guy is supposed to carry his bride over the threshold? The Romans believed that good and evil spirits fought for control at a home's entrance. For good to prevail, Romans felt you must enter a room with the right foot first. Romans concluded that a new bride was highly emotional. And she might be careless and forget about the right foot stuff. So to prevent the possible tragedy, they decided it was best for the groom to carry his bride over the threshold. Well, preacher, that, that's, that's not Bible. God tells Cain in Genesis 4 and 7, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the eager to troll you. You must subdue it and be its master. And that's why the Jews were commanded to write Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, 11, 13 through 21, marked with the word Shaddai, a name of the Almighty on a piece of parchment. And they would roll it up and they would put it in a container and they would put it on their doorpost because they was letting the enemy know you can't cross here because this house, this threshold belongs to El Shaddai. It belongs to Jehovah. It belongs to Yahweh. And we get to say it belongs to Jesus Christ. And we need to get the word of God back out and we need to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. We need to tell our kids when we get up and when we sit down that hey God is where it's at and I can go through all of it I can go through you got to read Deuteronomy 6 when you get some chance and I'm when you get a chance I'm running out of time but I can tell you if you'll do this we have the promise of Deuteronomy 11 13 through 15 and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul he will give the rain for your land and its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you, he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full that your days and the days, look at that, of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So I want you to write this down, and I'm almost done. The first weapon that we've got to get back is of the Word of God. It's absolute, and it will remain. And here it is, and I'm not being rude today. I'm giving you the Word. I'm not giving you my opinion. I don't care what the world says. If the Bible says it's wrong and it's an abomination, then it's what the Word of God says. No preacher has the authority to change the Word of God. 
We got to get it back. It's the word. If the word says it, we've got to stand on it. No matter who gets aggravated or mad, we can do it with love and compassion, and we should. But we've got to stand on the word of God. So I want my children to know that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is still relevant today. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I love verse 11. And such, I'm not going back to the dumpster. <laughs> Because I can tell you, we all fell in that category at some point of our life. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Come on, that's the word. I can't change that. I'm just glad that I've been redeemed. I will fight for the word of God. Look, I can't change it. I can't change John 3 and 5. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I can't change that. I can't. That's the word. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. And what agreement had the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That's not Josh Payne. That's not a Pentecostal denomination, a Baptist denomination. It is the word of God. I've got to come out from what I used to be, and I've got to live a different lifestyle. It's the word. Just like the enemy needs to be hosted. We read that God inhabits the praises of his people. Just like the enemy, enemy needs an atmosphere to dwell and to oppress, we read that if we create the right habitation, that the Spirit will come down and abide with us. That word inhabit means that inhabits means that he is enthroned or feels comfortable enough to sit down in the place where the atmosphere is right. I can have joy in my home and peace in my home and love in my home and anointing in my home. But is my home got the right atmosphere for me to have those things? Listen, and I'm hurrying. Worship music in your home sets the atmosphere. It's okay to turn on some music in your home and, and walk around your home and pray. Look, if people come by your house and, and your blinds are open and they see you walking around and praying and they think you're crazy, it's all right. They just don't know that you're trying to set the atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to abide in your home. Because in His presence is the fullness of joy. There are attributes that come when we, when we invite Him into our homes and our lives. I have the power to change the atmosphere. I can start releasing the word of God into my home and taking dominion. Notice Paul says that the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it's the only offensive weapon in the ensemble. The term Paul uses does not describe a long sword, but something more like a dagger intended for hand-to-hand -hand combat. What Paul is saying, you've got to take the word of God out and you've got to speak it. You've got to let the atmosphere know I've got the word of God on my side. I've got dominion and authority. When Jesus was in battle after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it says, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The adversary doesn't care how much we read the word, but he's fearful if you start speaking the word because the word of God changes the atmosphere of my home changes it when you take psalms 91 and you release it into your home it changes the atmosphere and look i know because this sermon was birthed when my son was having grandma seizures and i didn't know what to do 
And all I could do was get the word and release it in the atmosphere. You know what I told God? I will not lay this fight out. I don't know what's going to happen with Brantley. I don't know what the future holds. But I believe that I can set the atmosphere of my home for healing to take place, for virtue to flow. Come on, I believe we can take authority. We can have a happy marriage. We can have a happy home. We can have a godly home. Musicians, you can come. Paul gives, so we got the word of God, and Paul gives these six pieces of armor. But then Paul gives us a seventh piece of armor. Ephesians 6 and 18. Praying all times, at all times in the spirit. You notice that? With all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints this may seem inconclusive or controversial to you and i'm not here to argue or debate but i'm gonna give you the word i'm not giving you anything but the word today and maybe you come from a different faith one completely closed off to what i'm suggesting here yet i believe there's a seventh and forgotten weapon and that's praying in the spirit Notice a few things about this passage. First, praying is prioritized. We are commanded to pray always with all prayer. Second, our prayers should be in the Spirit as well. We do not pray in our own strength and intellect, but in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit can be understood as praying in alignment with God's will. Connecting to and drawing strength from the life of the Spirit. Permitting the Spirit to guide us in our prayers. To the Romans, Paul said... The Spirit intervenes in our prayers because we don't know how to pray. There's another aspect of praying in the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 and 2. Once again, not me. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now let me read 1 Corinthians 14 through, 14 through 15 because some of us only pray in tongues. And that's not biblical either. There's got to be a balance. I can tell you this. There's times that you need to prophesy with your words. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That's what Paul said. What am I to do? He said, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul said, I'm going to be balanced. However, we can't ignore that he wrote numerous times about praying in the Spirit. As Paul said in Romans, when the Spirit makes intercession through us, it does it with groanings too deep for words in our native language. That's what Paul said. Praying in the Spirit may encompass a lot of different things. Still, the context and practice of 1 Corinthians cannot be overlooked in its understanding. Here we see praying in the Spirit is the Spirit fashioning and prompting our prayers Prayers that bypass our understanding and that are directed to an audience of one. Speaking mysteries. And Jude warned us, and this is where we at, and I'm closing it down. That long-winded spirit got on me from youth camp. I'm sorry. Remember what I said? You got to know what time it is. Because Jude warned of the last days that would come to this earth with unimaginable troubles. He sees the future rise of ungodliness, mockery, and sensuality. And these people, Jude said, do not have the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. Then he says this in Jude 1, 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. There it is right there. I don't care how much you pray in tongues. If you can't keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, Jude suggests we can withstand so much darkness of our day simply by tapping into the Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my Spirit. And what, what, what we begin in the Spirit, we must finish in the Spirit. And today I can hear Ezekiel 22 and 30. I look for someone to stand in the gap to build up the hedge. But I couldn't find one. I 
there's some things in this building today. Look, your story is not my story. If you ever compare yourself to me or I compare myself to you, the Bible says that's not healthy. Your journey is not my journey. Your story is not my story. But you know that you got to stand and you got to fight. There's an expression in the fight industry called throwing in the towel. And it was Ali versus Frazier 3, the thriller in Manila. It was so hot. It took place at 10 a.m. local time. And it says it was so hot in the place that they were fighting that literally they both, it was like boiling water. Their sweat was like boiling water. He said it was so hot in that arena. He said you couldn't even breathe. Beaten and battered after 14 rounds of a boxing match that would go down in history as one of his best performances ever. Ali said, I was exhausted. I was as close to death as I've ever been. And before the 15th round, Ali walked back to his corner exhausted, and he even, he even said it. He said, man, I was done. So he looks at his corner man, and he tells him, he said, cut my gloves off and throw in the towel. I'm done fighting this fight. But Ali's corner man, corner man Dundee, ignored him. And Frazier's corner had no clue of what was going on in Ali's corner. And before Ali's trainer could get the gloves off and throw in the towel, Joe Frazier's corner man threw in the towel. And Ali won the fight that he was about to give up. When he stood to raise his hands in victory, he collapsed because of exhaustion. Ali, Ali later told his biographer, Thomas Halser, Frazier quit just before I did. <laughs> Some of you are on the precipice of the next in your life. And I can tell you, if you can hold on a little bit longer and you can stand and fight a little bit longer, the enemy's going to quit before you do. You hear me today. He's getting ready to give up. He's tired and weary. He's done everything that he can do. you got to be willing. What are you going to do? Are you going to stand or are you going to fight? Let's stand all over this house. Told him I don't want to end doom and gloom. We're going to end with this tile fight my battle. But can I talk to the men for a second? Can I challenge you? Stand and fight for your family. For your kids. I don't want Brantley and London to battle what I had to battle. I stand and I want to fight. I'm not perfect. You'll never get me. You'll never hear me get up here and say, man, I got my life together. I don't have my life together. I'm doing the best I can do. That's what I'm doing. But I refuse to let the enemy win. That's my mindset. You got to whip me every day that I get up because I know I will win this battle.